Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. Information. You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? <laughs> you are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, a bi-weekly podcast. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our fourth episode. We have a special guest, a prisoner lover, Mark Asquith. And here's our spoiler alert. There will be an in-depth discussion of the series and its plot points. We will touch on a lot of things connected to the Prisoner series. There will be spoilers, Buttercup, so be prepared. We are recording this session via Zoom, so thanks for its platform. Uh, Also, I've known Mark for many years, so thought that should be mentioned up front. I would like to start by introducing our special guest. Mark Asquith is a writer, producer, and interviewer. He is one of the founding producers of Space, Canada's national science fiction and fantasy channel, where he co-created in-house shows, including Inner Space. He produced dozens of movie and television specials, including the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special, Watchmen, and Orphan Black. Prior to Space, he was a creator of the award-winning Prisoners of Gravity, a consultant on the Genie Award-winning documentary Comic Book Confidential, and the manager of The Silver Snail. His comic book stories have been published by Caliber Press, Spider Baby Graphics, DC Comics, and Image Comics. Mark co-plotted and dialogued DC's authorized sequel to The Prisoner. Welcome, Mark. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, David. So good to have you. Oh, glad to be had. <laughs> oh, it's great to see you. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Prisoner series. Um, and we're going to be getting into it in just a second. But before we get into the Prisoner, uh, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. Uh, we want to know how you were first introduced to genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, more often than not, is a look back to those who grew up on SF and fantasy and horror and all the other speculative fields in the 60s and 70s. We do appreciate that some of our listeners will remember or have seen things before and after this time period. We think our audience will be those who want to remember back to these and other times with fondness and affection. I think Frank Zappa said it best when he said, 
it isn't necessary to imagine the world ending in fire or ice. There are two other possibilities. One is paperwork and the other is nostalgia. Mark, what was your first genre memory? Well, when I was four years old, I was given a copy of a graphic novel called Tantan Destination Moon, and it changed my life. I fell in love with comics. I fell in love with Tantan. I wanted to become a boy reporter. Uh, I loved the idea of going to the moon and all of the preparations for that. And uh, on my next birthday, I got the sequel to that, which was Explorers on the Moon. And uh, so I think those two books changed my life. Um, and I, I was very, very young. I must have read them, I mean, countless times. And, uh, and that changed my life in so, so many ways. Because look at my career. <laughs> it's all about space. It's all about comics. It's all about science fiction. And uh, there it is in, in one book. This may also be the same answer to that question, yeah. but if it is, that's fine. If not, you can pick something up. But what was your first genre thing that you actually fell in love with and why? Well, I think the first thing that I fell in love with was, was Tanta, and, and then that led to uh, Asterix. But it was really those comics. And then I really fell in love with um, what I could, I mean, it's hard to explain because Fantasy was just part of my life. These were the books that I was read to when I was a kid. My mom collected Arthur Rackham. My mom ran a children's bookstore called The Bookery in Ottawa. And so I grew up with storytelling. I grew up with fairy tales and, uh, and, and stories of knights. So in those early days, it was really about those heroic knights and, you know, Arthurian legend and a lot of Rackham. And uh, so I would say that was... So, and it's hard to go back and go, what's the thing that triggered it? But to be honest, I, I don't know. Um, so these are some rapid fire questions about your favorite genre things. We're just looking for titles generally instead of getting into, okay. unless of course you sure. want to expand on any of them. So we do wish to get to talking about the prisoner soon, but uh, we'll just get into some of these. For example, what is Perfect. your favorite genre movie? My favorite genre movie is 2001. I saw it when I was 12 on my birthday, and boom, instant fave. Uh, how about your favorite genre TV show? I have to say my favorite genre television show is The Prisoner. Okay. And how about your favorite genre novel? My favorite genre novel is Neuromancer by William Gibson. And I think it was just a matter of timing and that book hitting me at the right time. Uh, love that book. And your favorite genre, shorter work? I think my favorite genre, short work is Flowers for Algernon. It was a story that haunts me still. And your favorite genre, author? That's impossible. <laughs> I have a thousand genre authors, <laughs> but if I have to pick one, if I had to pick one, I think it would be Ursula K. Le Guin. And I paused so much on that, you know, Flowers for Algernon answer because the word for world is forest would have been up there too. One of the great short stories that I've read. And is there a genre theme that is your favorite? There are lots of themes and Prisoners of Gravity was structured around a different theme each each week. But if I had to pick one, it would be the portal stories uh, like Narnia 
uh, like the Wizard of Oz. I just love the idea that you would step through a painting or a door or or a, a wardrobe and find yourself in a remarkable new world. Um, now, we are expanding our list of favorites that we are asking our special guests about. Uh, Rob, sorry, was there a guest on episode two about Prisoners of the uh, about prisoners of the apes yeah that's it about uh, <laughs> planet of the apes that would be a whole different mashup um and we asked him all the questions we've already asked you but we left off some that we're going to ask you now and 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 it's okay if the, you don't have an answer but is there a genre theater production or play or whatever that is your favorite my favorite science fiction play is frankenstein it was the one that the national theater live did and it was extraordinary. Benedict Cumberbatch playing one of the monster, or I should say, not the monster, the creature, or um, the scientist. And he did it with Johnny Lee Miller, and every night they switched. And uh, I would say that's my favorite play. My favorite musical is going to be Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. And I owe that to my daughter, because she's huge on musicals. And I heard that, and I it's so clever and so witty. Here's a big shout out to Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. I want to mention something that we didn't get into, though. You asked me my early genre memory. And I, I have to say, when you asked Rob Sawyer that question, I had an instant flash in my mind. And I thought, I saw a show with a giant ant in it. Now, my family didn't get a television in 1962, 63. So I knew the sh it had to be somewhere around then. And a day of Googling, I found what that show was. It was The Saint. It was The House on Dragon's Rock. And I saw wow. it in 1966. And what is so hard about it is that it's not a science fiction show. And I would ask people and they go, maybe that's The Outer Limits. Maybe that's The Twilight Zone. And I, I luckily it's on YouTube. And I went, oh, my God, that's it. My entire childhood came back so in a way my earliest television memory of genre would be an episode of the saint as un as as strange as that may seem that's amazing mark i i had a, a similar situation where uh, i had seen something that was super horrific i mentioned it in our first episode but but it i found it very disturbing actually we were living up around ottawa at that time and uh, my mom was watching some uh, like creature feature type of thing in, in the middle of the day on a Saturday around this time. Go figure. Anyway, and, um, and the image of this death mask stuck with me. And I, I asked people for years and, you know, people that I know um, within the horror community, I figured somebody's going to know. I said, I'm pretty sure it was anthology. It must have been like an anthology film. It must have been uh, probably a 1960s film because it, this was early 70s. And you know how television was back then. You wouldn't get something that new. And uh, I asked. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Um, and eventually, I think I just came across it on TCM. Uh, I was channel flipping. And it was Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. Um, and there is a, a segment with a really horrific image. It was the, the most sort of unsettling face I'd ever seen until I eventually saw The Exorcist. But uh, there you go. So I can totally relate to that, that moment where you even doubt whether you actually saw it or not. You know, does, does this thing really exist? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, literally decades. And look at the community that, I mean, I know so many people who are in Dejora and no one got it because they were thinking the way I was, which was Jorah. And the moment right. I stepped out of that, then I realized what it was. There you go. Uh, now, Mark, is there a comic book series or graphic novel that is your favorite? My favorite graphic novel is V for Vendetta by Alan Moore, illustrated by David Lloyd. When it comes to poetry, both Troy and I are avid readers and writers of genre poetry. And there have been some classics like The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll, The Walrus and the Carpenter also by Lewis Carroll, Attack of the Crab Monsters by Lawrence Rabb, Mr. and Mrs. Frankenstein by Phyllis Gottlieb, The Death of the Loch Ness Monster by Gwendolyn McEwen. Uh, if it's okay, do you have a favorite poem? I do. And I, a lot of my early poems that I grew up with I loved, but I didn't really have a modern favorite until I read Agrippa, um, A Book of the Dead, which is by William Gibson. And I, I need to expand on why that is so cool. I don't know if you guys know about this poem, but it's really about memory and it's about his the death of his father. And the he encrypted with some people who helped him and an artist, he encrypted the poem so that after you read it, it starts to change. And I thought, not only is it a very good poem, which it is, but I thought, what a brilliant science fiction idea to use technology to talk about memory. Uh, another question we were thinking of asking guests uh, from now on is from all of the TV shows that you have seen, all of the countless episodes from all that you have seen in your life, is there one specific episode that is a genre episode that is your overall favorite? One of my favorite television shows is The X-Files. And there's an episode of The X-Files called Humbug, which I absolutely love. And I, it, it's brilliant. And, and I go back and just for comfort food. It's, it's comfort food for me. It's there, can you just mention just one or two plot points? Because I'm trying to remember okay. the episode. Just, and I, sometimes I can't do that just from the title. Humbug is an unusual episode because it's set in a... Um, it, I suppose what we would call a carnival home. It's a place where the freaks are and, and it's a murder mystery and uh, Mulder and Scully have to figure out what's going on. Some remarkable performances, but it, it's an episode that makes fun of how good looking Mulder is, which is really super fun. Uh, thanks. Now I think it's time to uh, go on to the prisoner series now. Um, sure. Troy, We'll give some background to the prisoner, set it in its context, give some background before we get into our own kind of discussion on the prisoner. So why don't you take it away, Troy? Will do, David. For those not aware, The Prisoner is a 1967 British allegorical science fiction TV show about an unnamed British intelligence agent who resigns from duty and is then abducted and imprisoned in a mysterious unnamed village. There, his captors try to find out why he abruptly resigned. The show was created by Patrick McGowan and George Markstein, with McGowan playing the lead role of number six. Through the series, a number of different actors play number two, the acting face of authority. We never see number one until the final episode. Number two goes through the series trying to break McGowan's number six, while number six tries to discover the identity of number one. 
When necessary, those who govern the village call upon a security guardian known as Rover to prevent prisoners from leaving the confines of the village. An initial robotic device was created for the series, but according to McGowan, it sank while shooting the first episode. The original mock-up for Rover was replaced by meteorological balloons when filming commenced. Episode plots have elements of science fiction, allegory, psychological drama, as well as spy fiction and surrealism. The Prisoner followed Patrick McGowan's previous series, the popular Cold War spy show Danger Man, which aired in the United States as Secret Agent. Danger Man ran between 1960 and 1968. 86 episodes of the show were produced before McGowan announced his resignation. The Prisoner produced a single season of 17 episodes that were filmed between September 1966 and January of 1968, with exterior location filming in Port Marion, Wales. Interior scenes were filmed at MGM British Studios in Boreham The series was first broadcast in Canada beginning on September 6th of 1967, in the UK on the 29th of September, and in the US on June 1st of 1968. The finale of The Prisoner aired on February 1st, 1968. Its wild swan song left open-ended questions generating controversy and letters of outrage from its audience. Following this controversial ending, McGowan claimed he and his family had to go into hiding for a while. The Prisoner's combination of 1960s counterculture themes and surrealistic settings had a far-reaching influence on science fiction and fantasy TV programming and on narrative popular culture in general. The final episode, Fallout, received a Hugo Award nomination for Best Dramatic Presentation in 1969. In 1997 and 2001, TV Guide listed Fallout as the 55th greatest TV episode of all time. And in 2013, TV Guide ranked it, The Prisoner, as the number nine greatest sci-fi show of all time. The Prisoner has a massive cult following and has influenced other creators ever since its original airing. I'd like to think that HBO's Westworld, B for Vendetta, Brazil, and The League of Gentlemen all owe a debt to The Prisoner. If you're just getting started as a fan of the show, check out the fan sites Six of One and The Unmutual. And hey, look for Mark Asquith's and Dean Motter's DC Prisoner graphic novel, Shattered Visage. David, I know in the village they say questions are a burden to others, answers a prison for oneself, but I think it's time we get on with a little Q&A with Mark. Okay. Uh, thank you, Troy, for providing that background. And uh, we always ask our, our guests on a specific topic. What was your, how were you first introduced to the Prisoner series? I watched the original airing in Canada and I don't know why <laughs> I just, I happened to catch it with my dad. Uh, I think in those days in Ottawa, there only were three channels. So the odds of catching something were pretty high. And I was, I loved it. I was just instantly captivated and it became the thing that my dad and I would do. We would watch the prisoner together. Mark, uh, when you were watching at that age, did you ever have any questions related to the themes that were going on? Or did you just sort of take it as a um, an espionage, a bizarre espionage story? Well, my dad ended up asking me most of the questions, which was really super fun, um, kind of turning the tables. But I think that was his way of teaching me of, about certain things. I think... Um, I, it's that's a really tough thing. I, the 
I, I think I just watched the show as if it were a normal show. And then I would think about it. And then I, there was just something about how enigmatic that show was, uh, the strength of McGowan's performance. And I just love the idea of a village. In fact, I'm recording right now from the village. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> and, um, and it's a beautiful day. Uh, the, yeah. the, the thing that's so remarkable about it is that you can watch it as if it's just a normal television show, or then you could start reading things in. And I was a huge fan, but I didn't really go down the prisoner rabbit hole until probably 1983, 1984, discovering um, William Gibson's work and starting to think about technology and starting to think about how the world had changed. And suddenly all those themes from the prisoner really resonated for me. And, uh, and I, I don't, I can't even explain it. It's just one of those shows that you see when you're a kid, it plants a number of seeds in your brain. And then years later, you can't shake it. And, and both of you will remember, because you're old farts, we didn't have the ability to record these episodes. We would watch them and they would evaporate. They would be right. gone. So, you know, discovering, you know, when they re-showed it on um, television, I do remember watching the Warner Troyer interview with Patrick McGowan and just being riveted by that. And uh, that was fantastic. So, yeah, a show that you could read on, you know, one level and then a show that you could read on a number of different allegorical levels. But even even at the age of 11, I knew this was not your normal television. Having interviewed uh, Alan Moore yourself, did has he ever, uh, I, I sort of made a connection there between some of his work, I guess, V for Vendetta and and The Prisoner. Did he, has he ever talked about that with you or do you know of him mentioning it? Uh, very briefly, he and I talked about The Prisoner um, just because essentially when I met him, I only had, I had done some stories for Taboo and I had named Taboo, which is the Spider Baby uh, horror anthology graphic novel. But he knew about the, um, prisoner and so he we were he was just kind of taking the piss out of me mostly i think because uh that a british author was not asked to do the prisoner and i i said i agreed with him i went you know it does seem a little odd that dc wanted dean and i to do it um but i guess because we were canadian you know we could pretend we were british the other <laughs> the other interesting per thing that i i there's an app, there's an issue of Miracle Man by Neil Gaiman that is mm. very prisoner influenced. And so Neil and I have talked about the prisoner a lot as well. But almost every writer that I've sort of had beers with, at some point, we end up talking about a handful of television shows. And you can name them as well as I can. You know, the Star Trek, um, Battlestar Galactica, mm. uh, X-Files. And the prisoner, because of my background, and often because I'm wearing a prisoner t-shirt or a prisoner pin, the prisoner will come up. Alan did make a joke about prisoners of gravity and saying that I was a one note producer and that I, I needed to work on things that had the prisoner in it. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. V, well, as, you, you, it's cool. You, I was just, you mentioned the connection between the prisoner ahead. and V for Vendetta and you're completely right. And so when I was interviewing him about V for Vendetta, we were talking about the themes of surveillance and we were talking about the, how a protagonist like V could be really difficult the way Patrick McGowan's, um, you know, number six was difficult as well. Yeah. It's nice how you mentioned uh, Mark about the saint 
Uh, that's one of the, I think, one of the more underrated series. And the way Roger Moore played it, he was obviously the perfect pick to be James Bond. And those early Bond films that he did were just played straight up and were great. And then it became silly and became nonsense. But I remember an early episode of The Saints where and it was kind of neat because i had this canadian connection because they were all like these spies trying to do trying to one-up each other and so on in a test sign kind of course so he gets the best of a canadian spy and the canadian said oh well let's go for a beer so that's one of the things i remember from that but anyways so uh what was it about the prisoner series that made it one of your favorites or what were some of the elements that you most identified with what i think what I really identified with, with, first of all, just the cinematography, it was just so beautiful. And the pace of the show is, was very different and stood out even then. Just these wonderful shots. And there's just something so evocative to me about Port Marion and the architecture. There was something very odd about how high tech the show felt in a way, and yet how low tech the village was. And you had you know, penny farthing bicycles, you had all fantastic design elements. Uh, even from the beginning, the first time I saw the show, I watched the credits and I freaked out. I, I, I'd never seen a show where even the credits where they built the penny farthing bicycle at the end, I just suddenly thought, oh my God, like this is amazing. And th there was something in The Prisoner to me that felt deliberate. It felt like they were not, um, they were not knitting this parachute on the way down. There was a plan. They knew what they were doing and everything seemed to fit together. The other thing that blew me away was the second episode of The Prisoner, The Chimes of Big Ben, a brand new number two. Like in normal American television, number two would have been the same every week. All of a sudden, Leo McKern shows up and he's menacing. And there's this beautiful you know, story about, you know, art and escape and how how Patrick McGowan's number six is going to get away. And it took me probably 10 years to figure out one of the reasons that I love The Prisoner is because it it's about his brain. It's really about how smart he is. He's really, he goes back, that idea of the smart person outwitting, you know, the bigger in this case, the big bureaucracy, that's David and Goliath. There's a huge number of things that, that you can go back to in mythology, even Br'er Rabbit, you know, how the smart manages to outwit the, the powerful. And that was a very, when you're 11 or 12, that's a really resonant theme. You know, I'd like to be able to say that uh, when I watched this week in the past week or so that it was a recent rewatch, but in fact, it was really my first time from beginning to end through the series. And uh, I mentioned to you a little bit earlier how incredibly impressed I was. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lifetime of TV and all of a sudden the show I think is in my top probably two. <laughs> um, and, and what, what really struck me about it, along with the visuals, as you mentioned, I mean, it's, 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 you look like, it feels like you're watching film, not 1960s television. Um, but it's, it's, it refuses to be didactic. It's, it's intelligent and it does not dumb down, which is sort of, you know, what most television does. Um, and we also get this sense of auteurism on television, which is sort of unheard of considering that television is this uh, by committee beast. 
but we have a show that you know your producer and one of your writers and your main star is is the same person um so all of that really impressed me but you've had uh, basically a lifetime to stew over it mark um what are your takeaways in terms of it's it's themes it's big picture themes i mean you mentioned the the uh, big guy versus little guy, David and Goliath type of thing. But but what else, um, you know, do you do you find are the, the defining uh, themes from the show? Well, one of the obvious ones, and it's in the opening, is you know information. What do you want? Information. This idea that information is valuable. Uh, that's a really interesting idea in the 1960s, and something that's become incredibly uh, obvious now. Here we are in you know 2021. That idea that information is power and information is something that is going to be worthwhile. That I love. I love the idea of surveillance. I love the idea that at a certain level for me, the show is really about identity. And I know when I was writing The Prisoner, I I, I, I was talking to some of the people at Six of One. I was obviously talking to Dean Motter. And I, I remember saying, you know, we we have a problem in that that one of the big issues in the prisoner is, is he John Drake? Is he the character from danger man slash secret agent man? And I said, you know, I'm fascinated by that. And I actually fall on the side of, well, it makes sense that he resigned from danger man. So of course this number six is John Drake, but because that question had been brought up by so many fans and it was so divisive, and it was never answered by McGowan or Mark Steen. I thought, you know what? That is one of those mysteries that needs to remain a secret. And the moment I thought of that, I suddenly went, wow, in many ways, what the prisoner show as a whole is about is about identity, identity, memory. They try to, they try to change his memory. They try to figure out um, what he knows. Of course, what he knows is almost by definition going to be a memory. So, and of course, I picked the grip as my favorite poem. I mean, obviously, I'm fascinated by things about memory. So you suddenly, as you start thinking about this television show, it suddenly starts to resonate on so many different levels. Uh, I also love the two-part finale, which just, first of all, once upon a time, for a kid who grew up on fairy tales, that was a great title. I remember when the title came up, just thinking, oh, this is going to be really, really good. Like you just knew, once upon a time. And the show ha always had that childish, weird, childish quality to it, while at the same time, obviously being very heady and intellectual. So how they did both at the same time is is quite remarkable. And then, of course, the final episode of The Prisoner. I mean, that was the biggest problem is somebody writing a sequel to it. Like, what do you do? Was, was that a drug trip? Has number one been revealed? If I mean, do we think that that's number one? And I'm doing this in a non-spoilery way because, I, you know, like you just said, Troy, you hadn't watched the series. So hopefully some of these listeners have not ever seen it. So I don't want to spoil what happens. But that last episode, I remember watching it with my dad and my dad just turned to me and he didn't get it at all. And part of it was the mm. Beatles song. Part of it was, you know, the whole um, essentially what appeared to be a breakdown by number two. Uh, which later we found out was actually true. Leo McKern had a breakdown, but it just defied what television was doing at the time. Uh, and that to me, 
is very special. And the fact that it's only 17 episodes, it feels very contained. It feels like the O2, or as you put it so eloquently, those that team of people put together something that said what it wanted to say, however enigmatically, and that was it. They they managed to walk away from it. And I, to me, it's poetry. To me, talking about it is like talking about a poem. Like, what did Robert Frost really mean when he said, you know, there are two ways to go in that forest, man? You know, like, it, it just, and it defies, defies explanation. It's very, very hard to look at the prisoner and say, this is what it's about. Well, I, I really love you, Troy, trying to explain the prisoner because can you imagine trying to pitch that show in modern television <laughs> okay then of course one of the centuries of the show is a giant weather balloon like no it would never it would never happen and i knew when we were doing the sequel when dean and i were talking about things i on one level i, I don't worry you know i'll take care of the quote themes i'll take care of those things but what visual images do you want and i remember on a piece of paper writing down i said i want to see statues that are decayed i want to see port marion we have to set it there and we have to see rover rover has to be terrifying because i remember the first time that rover showed up on that show i was terrified and that's a real accomplishment to make a weather balloon terrifying and part of it was the sound when you go back and watch it i'm sure you noticed this troy because you just watch them but the, they were really smart about what is it? Is it organic? Is it a machine? What is it? And I love that. That's something that I really love about, about the show is that even something as simple as the Sentry uh, had a different way of thinking going into it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that struck me in, again, coming across it for the first time now, I'd seen little bits and pieces in the 80s, but is that this show is always going to have resonance. Because, because of the sort of the setting, first of all, and because the themes are implicit, they're not explicit. And um, it's just, you're always going to be able to come to this series and, and take something away. Um, I was struck by something Patrick McGowan said in the um, Prisoner Puzzle. The Prisoner Puzzle with Ronald Troyer. Right, where he says, uh, progress is the biggest enemy on earth. And I thought as true as that was at the time of the interview, it's, it's got to be tenfold that in this day and age. And, you know, it just gives the prisoner that much more resonance for a modern audience. Yeah. And I think it immediately says, you know, there's a, there's a level of unreality in, in it. Um, it well, even calling an episode once upon a time, but you, the, the because it's set in, in, in a timeless place and the themes are timeless I agree with you. 50 years from now, people will still be talking about this show. Yeah, and for our fans uh, listening to the podcast, uh, it was great when the Troy shared with me that Warner Troyer interview of Patrick McGoo, and I think it was in the late 70s. It was in front of a class, and they were just spent some time, and they really get into some detail. I would probably recommend, if you don't want spoilers, watch the series first and watch the interview. And probably on YouTube, all you have to do is maybe Google Warner Troyer or The Prisoner or whatever. You'll eventually find it. It is definitely worth watching. Is there a specific episode or episodes uh, beyond the ones that you've already talked about that stood out in your mind as better than others? And if yes, which ones were they? Because it's certainly, I mean, for me, I, I very much did like the ending episodes as well. But there was the one, I think it was that the girl who was deaf, 
um, that had all of this. I mean, I just, that really did it for me because it was just this whole, you know, he's, he's being challenged. He's nearly being killed at every left, right and left turn. He's somehow getting through this. And it's just this frantic, this amazing journey going through all of these death traps. Um, That's one of my favorites. So is there something uh, from either an episode or parts of an episode that, that really stood out to you? That's such a difficult question. I mean, there are images like the chess game, uh, Anytime Angela Muscat, who shows up as as the I don't know what you call him the butler, um, there it's too hard for me. Uh, if I have to pick an episode, which I never like doing, it's it's the Chimes of Big Ben, only because for me it's one of those episodes that sets up all the themes in one episode. Where to look at some of the other uh, episodes like A, B, and C, or the Girl Who Is Death, seem to me to p- be picking up on one aspect of what the show could do. Um, and that's actually something that I really like about the show is they didn't feel like they were repeating themselves. Um, I had my least favorite episode when I watched it originally was the Western. I really did not like that episode. I really didn't get it and it seemed dumb. And where was my beloved Port Marion? And, you know, what did this mean? Had, had, you know, what's going on? And, I, when we were touring, we went to England to tour the prisoner graphic novel. I got to meet Ian Rakoff, who wrote, or, well, wrote the teleplay, wrote the, the plot of that episode. And he, it was great. And that changed what he said about it, which was Patrick McGowan wanted to do a Western, kind of changed the way that I thought about that episode. And in a way, changed the way that I thought about the prisoner, because that episode essentially says this idea can happen in another time and in another place. And this was kind of an American take on what the prisoner would be, where where the prisoner, 16 of the 17 prisoner episodes are about the British take, or sort of an international take on, on those themes, where living in harmony is a different kind of thing. Um, but boy, those last two episodes, it's hard to top. Uh, there's no to me, those last two episodes influence the X-Files, they influence Lost, they influence Ronald Moore, who did Battlestar Galactica. They inter- Obviously, we've talked about Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, who've both been influenced by The Prisoner. Uh, it's just huge uh, lesson for storytellers. Yeah, when I was thinking about my favorite episodes, I, I definitely had to separate the arrival and the last two episodes, I had to take them off the board, first of all, because I just figured those are three perfect episodes, you know, and they are the essence of the series. Um, so aside from those two, I, I, I narrowed it down to many happy returns. And uh, by the way, great uh, title. What a great. Title. Oh, I know. I, I, because I kept thinking, how is this, how is this going to pay off? And, uh, and I'm not going to ruin that because it's a great episode. Um, and Hammer into Anvil. Uh, I just, it was actually one of the last ones that I watched. And I felt like so many times through the episode doing the slow clap, you know, I just enjoyed every element of that uh, teleplay um, and, and its performances. It was just so good. Hmm. What's so great about this, uh, and I'd like to hear your guys' opinion of this, is that the number of times he actually gets out, but he never really leaves the village. 
because if, if you think that you've built this raft, you somehow got out or however you've left, you're right back in it. Well, and you can't trust anyone. That's part of what's so cool is you can't tr- like, like they're either going to be someone like you at the village that you want to get on your side. There's a whole episode that dealt with the question. How do you know? And, you, and how do you determine it? And what was so cool is that the stuff that Patrick McGoon, when he was being so um, sure about himself and was being um, uh, like showing some authority about trying to get the heck out of there. That meant that someone working with him thought, well, he's showing this aspect of himself, which means he is not a prisoner. He's one of the ones in authority. So I was wondering if you can, comment on that but yeah and it, it the village tries to co-opt him in many different ways and tries to make him part of the community and in, in in that i mean uh, arrival you're right kind of stands alone but the second episode the chimes of big ben one of the big things is we want you to become part of the community we're having an art exhibition you know this is a way that you can be part of the community they get him to run for office that great episode where you know vote for number six um and I haven't discussed this because it's not one of my favorite things about the show, but it's certainly a main theme in the show is paranoia. Who do you trust? I mean, there's the X-Files. Trust no one. I mean, that is the X-Files. Yeah. And, and the, the idea that, you know, number six would meet certain people like number 47 or certain people and try to figure out where they land. The other thing is, but who's in charge of the village? What country is it? Is it a country? Maybe it's a consortium of of, of people. Like, what's going on? And those questions, and I think for me, one of the reasons that I love the show is that they didn't answer those questions, and they allowed my imagination to engage with the show. That's why it's my favorite show because they didn't give it away. The ending of Lost kind of wrecked Lost for a lot of people, right? And it diminished the show for me. But the the prisoner never really. Even the last episode, the finale, you know, Fallout, you can interpret that so many different ways. Go ahead. <laughs> but that's what my dad would ask me. My dad would say, like, what's going on? And he didn't get a lot of the pop culture references and he didn't get the Beatles song. And, you know, he, he found it very, very confusing. And then, the you know, again, I'm trying to do this in an unspoilery way, but what appear to be reveals might not be reveals. And and that's really very interesting. And I think the idea that you touched on, which is that the village could be anywhere and the village could be London or the village could be in a Western town. That's a very powerful idea that kind of percolates. I think you have to kind of think about that for a while and then go, hmm. And that's another very resonant idea. Yeah, as McGowan uh, said, I think in the same interview, we all live in a little village. Um, Mark, mm-hmm. I am a, a crazy Beatles fan, and I, I also can't believe that I had never known that All You Need Is Love is used in this episode, and so well, first of all. But, you know, just the it's was such a hip show. That's the other thing that, you know, you, all these different levels of, of why this is one of the best shows ever, but it really, it's an incredibly stylish show from the cars to the clothes. And then all you need is love. They're using a Beatles song that is less than six months old. 
um, came out, I believe, June 67 for the uh, One World broadcast. And, and here it is showing up in The Prisoner. So, again, just made me a, a total fan. <laughs> and how did they do that? The Beatles did not license songs at that time. They did not want to have their songs used in that way. So that's another fascinating mystery. And I don't know the answer to that. No, I tried to, you know, do a little work on that, and I really couldn't get any answers other than that it happened. Um, I assume that uh, probably everybody within the camp were fans, though. So. Yeah, I, I think you're right. All right. Uh, so uh, when it comes to the new number two, the revolving door of new administrat- administrators, each one coming in with their own idea of how to do things. Is this not a comment on the working class world where we see every three or four years or five years, some new person coming into your workplace, someone in charge with their own set of values and priorities, and the workers having to adapt and change as every new administration comes into power? Oh, absolutely. And I I wouldn't even limit it to workers. I think as human beings, there are levels of bureaucracy that surround us. And sometimes it feels very capricious. And the the wonderful thing about having a different number two is that they would test him in a different way. They had different sets of priorities. They they had a feeling uh, about what would break him. And that I love that idea. And I, I, I particularly love Leo McKern in the last two episodes where he thinks that he has the mechanism that will finally break number six. And we've seen all these previous ways to do it. And some of it was with drugs. Some of it's with sub subterfuge. Some of it's, you know, uh, getting him to have certain allies. But, uh, and, and that great episode where he essentially um, is replaced by another person. I, it's just, it's mind boggling um, how each number two could come up with uh, an idea to try to break number six. And at the end of the day, you keep it kind of reveals more about the number two than it does about number six. His response is to always find a way out. His response is to try to not conform. And he does not want to tell them their main thing, which is they want information and they're not going to get it. And that, that to me is fascinating. So at the end of the day, you learn, really, you're learning about the bureaucracy, you're learning about the number twos, which is why around five or six episodes in, you start going, well, then who's the ultimate authority? Who is number one? Which becomes a really resonant question throughout the series. Yeah, and before Are, Troy jumps in, I just wanted uh, to add one more one more quick thing just in the sure. response to it because it was very cool. I can't I can't remember the name of the episode, but there was one where number six finally said, you know what? I've been doing all of this stuff. I've been fighting these people off. I've been doing what I'm doing. I am going to go after number two. I am going to make it my purpose. Other than the last couple episodes, there was one where he basically undermined and did all this stuff just to drive number two insane. Hammer and down. And I love that episode. Yeah, Hammer and Anvil. Like that was just like this guy is, I mean, this guy is a secret agent. He resides. He's in the village. This guy is one of the most dangerous people on the planet. 
He's already been trained. He's already an expert in everything. The very first, one of the very first moments is there's this woman who's just leaving after cleaning things. And then she's trying to say, oh, well, they're doing all this. And she's trying to be on his side. He sees through that in two seconds or maybe a quarter of a second. He said, no, you're working for them. Get out of here. He has been trained partly by them beyond his own amazing abilities. And he is just destroying them. Which, yeah, one of the things that's interesting is that he's not really likable. I mean, he's admirable, and you know, you, you watch him, uh, but he's not warm and fuzzy. He is not um, Roger Moore. You know, he doesn't have a certain likable quality. And one of the things I like about the show is they actually lean into that. There are moments where you just think, boy, that guy, he's... You know, in some cases, he feels very obsessed. He's just obsessed about trying to escape. I mean, not that I blame him, but, you know, you, you, you get a sense that he's ruthless. You really get a sense that he could do anything. He could throw anybody under the bus. He doesn't really seem to show any great affection. And, of course, this is completely, you know, 180 from the rest of American or British television at the time. There are very few characters and in american television you don't come across an unlikable hero like that until maybe buffalo bill years later so it's it's fascinating to me yeah and he's very much like uh alan moore's v which i assume was a bit of a model for the character um mark do you have uh any comments on be seeing you and sort of the whole surveillance state that it seems to be a bit of a prescient comment on well, that's, yeah, I love that. And and when Dean and I sat down to work on, set, when Dean and I sat down and started thinking about the graphic novel, we one of the big ideas, one of the visual moments that we had was we wanted a camera inside of a statue because that just seemed to be one of those images that would sum up the prisoner. And then we really started thinking, about where a camera would be and how cameras would work and uh, really got into point of view and thinking about uh, that level of, of surveillance. Interestingly, now, I think because of what we know and because of the Patriot Act in the States and just because of the way that our lives have mutated and the use of social media, we are being surveilled all the time to learn that Cambridge you know, Analytica was getting all this data from us that we didn't even know that level of surveillance just isn't uh, visual, which is frankly, when we did ours. And I think when Patrick McGowan did his, we were thinking about, yeah, what's the visual surveillance? Now we realize it's much, much deeper than that. And, um, and that, yeah, that's another reason why the show, again, just, just, <laughs> it's so relevant now. Yeah, I'm sure the three of us will sign off and perhaps go on to <laughs> Facebook and see that we've got a lot of prisoner uh, T-shirts and whatnot in our uh, in our wall. Yeah. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the prisoner? Uh, you've got it for those who can see, which is just me and David. <laughs> you have a, uh, a a book over your shoulder called The Prisoner, uh, with I see Jack Kirby at the top of it. What's what's that book all about? When we were asked to do The Prisoner, Dean and I split up the duties. So one of my things was going to be the research. And and at one point, 
um, I was still working at the Silver Snail and I had access to Marvel in DC, which was a lovely thing. And I started talking to uh, various editors at Marvel. And one of them said to me, hey, I hear you're going to do The Prisoner. Did you know that Jack Kirby had done The Prisoner? And I said, yes, that I, I did know. Uh, that was in Jim Stranka's media scene. And he said, well, have you ever seen it? I said, well, there were a couple of pages in, in the magazine, but that's all. And he pulled out the entire issue and handed it to me. Wow. And I'm looking at the original pencil art by wow. Jack Kirby. And it was it was mind blowing. And one of the things that was really wild was that some of the images that Dean and I had talked about, like I want a moment where we see number six and then he's in a kind of um, courtyard and we, we see there's decayed statues and, you know, the Fort Marion architecture. It's there. It's in what Kirby was doing. It was it was something like I I couldn't believe it. Like it was just one of those moments where you're like, I am holding history in my hands. And I read it, well, read it. There were no dialogue. It was just images. And Jack had written some stuff on the side. But I looked through it about three or four times. I tried to kind of memorize not what was going on, but really my feeling uh, of what he was doing. And he was very good about the, you know, the idea of camera. Uh, using uh, Magoon's face, a very Kirbyized version of of that, but he, uh, it was just beautiful. So that was great. And then then someone said, "Oh well, did you know that Steve Englehart and uh, Gil Kane had done a version?" I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, no." And they pulled that out. So then I'm going through the the Steve Englehart Gil Kane version, and both Incredible. of those are. Both of those were republished by Titan Books fairly recently, and they've shot it from the original art. Now, it's pencils, but they've shot it in color. But, of course, it's pencils. So you can see it, it's really as if you are holding that original art as I did in 1987. It's in a remarkable uh, book, and I highly recommend it. That but is incredible. There was a moment in the in the, the opening shot of the Egglehart Gil Kane one uh, was interesting because, again, one of the things Dean and I had talked about was we wanted to make a big moment in our story was going to be the car, that that car is so iconic. But it was funny because when you talk about, when I, I talk about how we researched the prisoner, obviously I read all the um, material that I could. I watched all the episodes. I, I had friends at TVO, so I was able to watch the prisoner puzzle by Warner Troyer. So I was coming to the project, you know, pretty knowledgeable at that stuff. But then I also had been writing my own graphic novel called Silencers with Rick Taylor. And I'd been thinking a lot about modern espionage and how modern espionage worked. So I thought, oh, this will be an interesting hybrid. Um, and Dean's visual right away was I want to draw a female secret agent coming in to the and meeting number six. And that was a month to figure out, well, where would he be? Would he be in London? Um, where would he be? Where would he be in the United States? And, and that was a problem. Like where would number six be? And I remember calling him up and saying, Dean, you got to hear this. I said, I was just typing it up. And the way that I was writing was that I would just get, 
Leo McKern's number two, and I would just write a four or five page monologue. And then I would be looking at number six and I would think, how would number six react to the things that number two has brought up? And one of them was a discussion. And, and, and number two turns to him and says, because they're in the village. And he says, but you were, you were free to go. And number six <laughs> says, then I was free to stay. Nice. And you're like, oh my God, that's the character that, that they would say to him, okay, you can leave. And he's that ornery and he's right. that difficult that he would leave and that he wouldn't leave. And then I thought, wait a minute, fallout is a problem because what does fallout mean? Does fallout, you know, and I don't want to spoil, but there are some implications in that final episode. And then I thought, that's interesting because if he's been broken by drugs, then he would stay in the village. If he is in a position of authority, he might stay in the village. If he's just being a dick, he'd stay in the village. So all of a sudden, I had my beginning. I knew he. we have to begin this in the village. And then that meant, okay, well, we can't start it there. So we have to start with her and we'll move forward. We'll place it in an espionage kind of context. And then we'll get into... Um, we'll get into the prisoner, but uh, that character, you know, I mean, I've talked about all the ideas, but at the end of the day, what fascinates me the most is number six. I just keep coming back to that character. I keep coming back to how enigmatic he is. I keep coming back to how, you know what? I was thinking about this in terms of, of, of the Terminator. One of the reasons that people love the, that character that, of, that our Arnold Schwarzenegger played in the first movie is that he's relentless. And even though he's a bad thing, you know, he's the you know, antagonist in the film, we admire in a way that he doesn't give up. And that's the same thing with number six. He will not give up. He, he's relentless in his pursuit of freedom. He's relentless in his pursuit of his ideals. And it's interesting now in 2021 and go, Okay, would he be right wing? Would he be left wing? Would he be centrist? Where would we place him on the political spectrum? And again, he's an enigma. I don't know. I don't right. know. Yeah, yeah. As I was thinking about that, watching the show, uh, I, I sort of my my own conclusion was that he's not really a political figure as much as he is a philosophical figure. And, and again, that's just something you don't see, uh, especially on network television. Okay, let me do a little sidebar with you here, Mark. It's a little rabbit hole that I, I feel compelled to go down, but you're the perfect person to throw this to it involving Jack Kirby. Um, I can be your Alice. I can be okay. your Alice on this. It's, it's you know driven me nuts for years that Kirby doesn't get recognition the recognition I think he deserves for his part in influencing star Wars. And yet I find when you look at like his new God series and you see things like, uh, you know, a character named dark side, a character who looks like he's wearing uh, a Darth Vader. Well, actually the Darth Vader headgear looks like it's a Kirby piece of headgear as does the stormtroopers. Um, you have the source as the all powerful uniting, uh, energy in the world as opposed to the force. Um, am I reading too much into that? Or, you know, should there be a little tip of the hat there to Kirby in, in what we know as the Star Wars mythology? 
No, I don't think you're overreaching. I, one of the things you need to know is that George Lucas was part owner of a store called Super Snipe, and he really knows his comics. He knew his comics solid. The other interesting thing is that he was picking, you know, he's, his, he was such a polymath in a way that he was able to look at and synthesize all kinds of interesting influences. There's a lot of Japanese influence in, in Star Wars from my point of view. There's a early Japanese film that may or may not have influenced him called The Hidden Fortress, which kind of feels that that had an influence. Certainly in the second Star Wars film, you get the feel that he's really picked up Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Um, so I think he wears his influences, George Lucas wears his influences quite openly. And I completely agree with you. The, the, the Kirby feel to Star Wars to me is absolutely there. Um, interestingly, I did with the first time I saw the first film in 1977, I didn't love it because it felt like a mashup between Kirby and, um, uh, the Republic serials. It just felt kind of forced to me. It just was like, Oh, meh. I, it didn't quite work. It was charming, but it kind of felt like a kid's film in a way. And of course I was, you know, 21 and, you know, we can't, you know, like kids films. And then it wasn't this, it wasn't until the second film where I suddenly, and even that in particular, the end of that felt so Kirby that that final lightsaber saber battle is to me, that's, pure Kirby and seeing a character like Yoda Yoda is very, very Kirby where Yoda would build up to something and then you'd meet it and then you go, Whoa, uh, well, fantastic for the famous Galactus trilogy. And then you would have, you know, the Herald of Galactus just shows up. I don't know visually, of course, it's completely different, but that idea that you really don't know um, what something is, you don't know, you know, what Yoda is, you don't know what the Silver Surfer is. All of that stuff to me is very, very Kirby. Um, and and just the, you know, I, it's hard to, it's so hard to say because I feel the Japanese influence very, very strongly. The design of the helmet I, feels very samurai to me. Uh, but again, you're right. There's a lot of Kirby in there. Um, but then there's also a lot of Alex Raymond in there and a lot of Frank right. Frazetta. Um, yeah. And and Lucas, you know, as I say, he had Super Snipe and he did collect original art. I think he still has a huge collection, um, but he clearly knew his Flash Gordon. He clearly knew all of that stuff and it all kind of mashed together. So I, w- I go down that rabbit hole with you. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I think that to be reductive and go, oh, you know, Star Wars is it's no oh, right. it's a mashup of all things and that's why it be it, one of the reasons why uh Star Wars became so resonant because so many people would see something in there that they could connect with uh, yeah. you know well thanks for uh for uh yeah going down that that rabbit hole <laughs> with me and David so really this is like you know uh, often number 6 ends up leaving the village only to be brought back so i guess we can now go back to the village and uh, do you have another question uh, sure one thing I was thinking of is because we're, we've got about five minutes left. Uh, you know, if this was at a convention, the person from the from the uh, convention would hold up that sign 
peek in the door, hold up that five-minute sign. And I don't know if you guys have any interest. I've thrown it into the chat area, whether or not you guys want to reprise the roles or, or be number two and number six and do that whole opening. All right. Okay, let's try this. This is super fun. <laughs> yeah so what'll happen is mark it'll be number six and troy will be number two and let's try this so go right ahead guys where am i in the village what do you want information whose side are you on that would be telling we want information 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 you won't get it by hook or by crook we will who are you the new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> that was some great laughter there. <laughs> and the other line that I love, that like this is resonant, and it doesn't appear in the first, it appears in the second one. And it's always, as you said, Mark, the new number, two, there's always someone he's defeated. So it's a different, and that they change that in every episode, because it's a new number two saying those lines. But one of the other great lines in it is where a number six says, I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. So some of these are some of the great taglines or the great moments in the series. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what that what you've just described is, I mean, I, I pinned that up and put it by my writing board. I mean, that is, that's him, you know, he, and he's difficult. He's going to be difficult. Um, and I love, I love that idea of number two, you know, um, by hook or by crook, we will. And uh, that was a very resonant line for me. And uh, we want information. And I made fun of that in, in, not made fun, I made reference to that in the graphic novel where he talks about information. And so right. that things would be information. And I thought, you know, he's so clever verbally. In fact, the number twos are also very clever um, verbally. And I like the fact that, that there were female number twos, that they wasn't just a parade of, you know, white guys that you all felt went to, you know, Eaton. Um, mm. uh, certainly, you do feel that Leo McKern's number two went to Eaton, but, the re you know, it's a different, it's different slices of, of British bureaucracy. And I really like that. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, but my question, Troy, because you just watched it, when you saw like things like a teeter totter or that strange room in in Fallout, and and the episode before it, Once Upon a Time, what is your reaction to like, essentially an episode that is the penultimate episode is essentially just two people in a room? Oh well, it, well, it's it's incredible. And one thing actually, I want to mention just as a you made me think of it, but I'll answer your question as well, was how the show is not afraid of lack of dialogue. You know, so much television um, for the first, you know, 20, 30 years was basically radio with pictures. It was a teleplay and you were on a set and it really didn't matter if you were watching, you, you knew what was happening. That's not true with, with The Prisoner. You have got to be watching. And so much is conveyed in McGowan's, uh, you know, his, uh, his glances at people. Um, how did I feel? Well, um, I am both a huge David Lynch fan, 
and a huge fan of magical mystery tours. So I, I like my surrealism. Um, and I, again, I, that, the second last episode, um, that's not Fallout. What's the second last episode called? Uh, Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time. Um, again, I was another one of those episodes where I wanted to stand up and do the slow clap. Um, because it was audacious, you know, they were daring to go there, which is exactly what I wanted. I would have been so disappointed. I won't get into a spoiler, but if, if they had given us a more conventional, perhaps satisfying ending in a traditional sense, but I am very satisfied with the ending that we were given. I don't think there is any other possible ending given the setup. Um, so I loved all of that. I love the butler um, and I love Dem Bones and, and all of that. <laughs> uh, you asked me earlier what my favorite movie was and I said 2001. And one of the reasons that I love 2001 is it also defies kind of explanation. And the last 5, 10, 15 minutes of that film, go ahead, explain that to me you're not going to be able to same thing with the final episode of, of the prisoner at a certain point both of those endings defy neat explanation and that's why i love them and and i i know that a lot of people are frustrated by both um but yeah you won't find a pat answer but then you know the themes that the prisoner explores are you know not going to be easily solvable um and I think McGowan knew that. I think, you know, the team knew that. Uh, and I, I do want to react to your whole thing about silent. Like, you're absolutely right. The, the prisoner, I think right away in my first answer, I said, you know, it's pacing and the, the, how visual it was immediately set it apart from all the other television going on at the time. And it's just so sure of itself. You can really feel the craft. And that, certainty is when you get to the final two episodes where things seem to fall apart in your brain, you keep thinking, but these people know what they're doing. McGowan is not an idiot. Mark Steen is not an idiot. These people know what they're doing. So why are they frustrating me? Why are they not allowing me to know what the answer is? Because what, you know what I want? I want information. And you know what McGowan is telling me? You won't get it. And then if there's any other final thought, so is there something that you have picked up from the prisoner after maybe repeated viewings or things, talking to people that you didn't know about early on that you might want to share? One thing that surprised me about the prisoner that I didn't know about until, um, honestly, until I talked to Ian Rakoff was that the episode, the Western episode, was banned and never aired in the states and that was a real surprise to me because in canada we did get it and 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 so i had seen that episode and ian was his reaction was oh that episode was you know censored it was never shown in in the states and i said well i'm a canadian <laughs> so uh that was a strange thing um i had no idea that that episode was somehow singled out as being subversive. And I've never really gotten a good explanation by anybody as to why that, that episode was um, never shown. 
a mystery Troy, for your yeah, go ahead. <laughs> maybe one of them might might have the answer and Troy any final comments from you before we wrap it up obviously we want to thank Mark for his uh, appearance on our podcast I'm I'm so glad that Mark uh, chose the prisoner because uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't have you know been exposed to it um, I can't believe it's a, the show was made 50 years ago it's so fresh it's um, it's really a perfect show um, I'm really glad that uh, you know you could join us Mark and um, I just wanted to say to the two of you be seeing you be seeing you yeah, go ahead say, at the level of well, I like, I just like the clean ending of Be Seeing You. And when I was signing the graphic novel, I would often sign it Be Seeing You in that font because I think it's so, I mean, that's the series to me. And that's so evil, right? Be mm. Seeing You. <laughs> yeah. And even the font itself didn't have capital. Like that, that already says that we're individual, we're not individuals. We're all part of this, this almost Borg collective kind of thing. Again, okay. Mark, thank you so much for, for being our guest. You're fantastic. Well, the pleasure was mine. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care.